she probably was intending to make me feel guilty so that I would ideally not do this again. Whereas that can create this shame cycle where, you know, years later, I, I'm, you know, I have another example where I'm talking to a friend and I said the word ass. I said I was going to get my ass kicked if I signed up for football because I was a small kid. Mm. And um, I immediately felt extremely embarrassed and felt uh, as if I had done something terribly wrong. And not only that, I, I felt as if, um, you know, if those types of words are going to come out of my mouth, maybe I just am the problem. Friends, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 97. Can you believe it? 97 episodes in. Man, we're almost to 100. What's going to happen when we hit 100? Uh, Balloons fall from the ceiling. Confetti shoots out of your iPhone. I don't really know what's going to happen, but it's going to be a wild ride. This is part number two of our series, uh, books my friends wrote. Last week we talked about, uh, we talked to Colby Martin about his book, uh, The Shift, which is about moving from conservative to progressive Christianity, tackling some of the issues that y'all face when that sort of stuff happens in your life. Uh, Today we're talking to my other friend, uh, Josh Rogie, who wrote a book called Shame, and it's subtitled An Unconventional memoir. And uh, in this conversation, we just kind of scratched the tip uh, of the information in this book, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. Uh, Josh has been through a lot in his life. He spills much of it in this book, and he ties it all into this topic of shame. And I think when I picked up the book, I was like, you know, I don't think I've really uh, experienced that much shame in my life. Like I've, I've been ashamed at times, but I don't think I ever really carried uh like shame with me enough so to write a book about it. But as I was reading this book and listening to or hearing or reading, I should say, Josh's stories in the book, I'm like, oh, like at this season of my life when I was feeling this way and I didn't have words for it, that was shame. Oh, and it just brought a lot of vocabulary to my own experiences, helped me put words on things I hadn't really had words for. Uh, up until the point that I read this book. So anyway, go out and get it. The link to it will be in the show notes. Uh, A few other things in the show notes as well. Patreon, if you want to give to support the show, patreon.com slash whatifproject. Uh, We have a closed Facebook community called the What If Project community. Uh, You can go and search it on Facebook. I'll put that link in the show notes as well. We also have a store where we sell t-shirts and hoodies and hats and mugs and stickers and all sorts of fun stuff, backpacks, blankets. I mean, it is all in there. It's called the Heretic Shop. Uh, So go check that out as well. Uh, That link will also be in the show notes. Special music today uh, is from my friend Derek Webb off of his newest album called Targets. Uh, If you don't know who Derek Webb is, use the Googles, use the internet, uh, go search his name, and uh, you will read about him and all the great things he is doing in his world 
in his life. Uh, so I will put the link to him and uh, to his music as well in the show notes. And lastly, I hope that you're doing well these days. Uh, this episode with Josh was recorded early March. And so COVID-19 stuff wasn't like really a thing on anybody's radar. Like it was out there being talked about, but nobody was staying home. There was no such thing as quarantines up until that point or up at that point. Uh, so we don't talk about it at all in this episode, but I didn't want to let this moment, this this time, this day, this this episode go by without at least mentioning it and checking in with you. Hope you're hope you're doing okay. Um, as I've said in previous episodes and previous things, if you if you need to talk to somebody, you can reach out to me. I'm on Facebook. Uh, I am on Twitter. I'm all over the place. So just go search for me. Shoot me a message. I'd be happy to talk with you if you're wrestling with things. You're feeling certain ways. Uh, the times are feeling heavy for you. Uh, go check. Go find me. Go to the What If Project community on Facebook. Go in there. We'll all be there to support each other and that sort of stuff. But I hope that you're doing well. I hope your families are doing well. And uh, my love and my prayers um, I send out to you. So all of that said, as I said, this is episode number 97, part number two of our series, uh, Books My Friends Wrote. And this is my conversation with the one and the only Josh Rogie. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with Josh Rogie, who recently wrote a book called Shame, uh, subtitled An Unconventional Memoir. So Josh, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's nice to chat with you. Absolutely. It's great to talk with you, Glenn. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. So I read, I read your book and I absolutely love it because so much of your story seemed to resonate with my own. Uh, so first of all, thank you. Uh, thank you for sharing your story with the world. Uh, I'm sure it's always interesting or maybe an odd feeling to put your life story on paper and send it out to the universe. <laughs> it is. And uh, it was released, what, in February, I believe? Yeah, February 11th was the release oh. date. Okay. And so I'm wondering, first of all, how has the feedback been? Like, what are people saying? And most importantly, like, how do you feel about the book? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been you know, blessed to, to get really good feedback so far. It's been a lot of people responding and reacting the same way you just did, where uh, maybe it doesn't 100% overlap with their experiences, but it's similar enough that uh, they, they've been able to grasp at certain things and say, hey, I, I really related to this section hmm. um, about, you know, being bullied or about um, my faith changing and now I don't know how I fit into a church or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so it's, it's been very positive. I, I will say that it um, hasn't been without its anxieties for, from my side of things because hmm. uh, it is very much... Uh, um, unfiltered, um, tell all, I guess you might say. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, it definitely um, has uh, brought its own challenges in that way. But everybody's so, been so gracious and, and understood what I was going for that uh, it's really been a huge blessing. Honestly, I, I can't say any bad things. That's awesome. And how do you like, how did, how did it feel to like get it out there in the world? Was it 
was it scary when it first launched? Was it like, what are people going to think of this thing? Or like, how did it feel for you? Yeah, absolutely. So this is my first book and, and certainly a very personal book. And um, it has been scary. Uh, like I said, I, I talk about a lot of things that honestly, even as I was writing this book, things were coming out that my wife, Danica, didn't even know about until mm. you know I let her read the first draft of each chapter as we went through this. Um, it, I had kind of a unique publishing path in the sense that um, I originally thought I was going to self-publish it. So I did a lot of sharing and beta reader type things um, way before it was released. Okay. And I think that helped ease some of my anxieties. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's still once once I got it um, set up through choir publishing and then obviously that's going to give me a, a wider reach and and all of that. It has kind of come back around where I'm like, oh, people who don't know me at all are now reading this. It definitely has its uh, scary moments. But but again, I nothing that we're not um, we're not willing to push through. So uh, for our listeners, uh, I will put the link to the book. Uh, in the show notes, and I highly advise, as you'll hear in the in the conversation, that you go out and get it because Josh uh, tackles some difficult topics, sometimes in humorous ways, and then uh, right into the into the serious things as as well. So, uh, before we jump in, though, Josh, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, who are you? Uh, what do you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, um, so I, I have a normal nine to five. Uh, that I mean, I I don't mind it, I guess, but it's not necessarily the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, I, I've definitely, uh, am somebody who, you know, I've been in the church environment pretty much my whole life. I'm, uh, 32 now and, um, been going to church almost my entire life up until the last year or so. And, um, I would say the thing that really drives me is just having authentic conversations, having conversations mm -hmm. like you and I are, are having now, Glenn, uh, where we can, uh, you know, talk about real things. Um, I don't really enjoy uh, fluff or surface level things a whole lot or anything like that. And, um, you know, just digging in deep, you know, I, I feel weird cause I'm using these like catchphrases or something, uh, but, but I'm talking about like conversations around what we actually believe, asking questions that people are afraid to ask and stuff like that. Yeah. I think, I think that's the beauty of your book. And I said it before we hit record that it just feels like your book helps can help people put words on things that they've been feeling. Like I know even for myself, like I read your book and I was like, man, I've always felt that, but I never really had the words to put it exactly like that. So I think you know, your book, I think when people read your book, it's going to draw out conversations um, in the groups awesome. of people who are reading it for sure. Yeah, I really hope so. I mean, part of how I wrote this, um, I feel like there's a lot of good source material out there for you know people who are going through the deconstruction process from kind of an intellectual perspective. Uh, even many of my fellow choir writers uh, have extensive research and, and mm. things along those lines. And I wanted to kind of be in a similar space, but look at it from a different angle and uh, just cut out a lot of the, um, I, I'm not dumbing it down necessarily, yeah, no, yeah, but, yeah. but just uh, I wanted to kind of create almost like a blunt hammer where it's just like, let's just go at these without any poetry, without any fluff and without any large words, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I hope that resonates. Yeah, I think a lot of times people write about the kind of stuff that you wrote about from a, almost like an academic stance where they talk about things like shame and they talk about it like psychologically and stuff like that. And you you go into some of that stuff, but I think you know your book comes from a very personal place, which I think is what um, is really going to hit uh, readers in the heart. So. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I feel as if 
storytelling for me personally is a more effective tool to to get people to understand where I'm coming from. So that's that's yeah. kind of the angle this book tackles it from. Well, that's what Jesus did, right? He told some stories. Right, exactly. <laughs> we could take a page out of his book. <laughs> I, yeah, he seems to know a thing or two. So uh, the book is called Shame. And uh, throughout the book, you kind of weave your story uh, in and out of you know various points that you make regarding shame. And I'm wondering, kind of kick it off, like why write a book about shame? Like of all the things you could talk about, in the world? Like why, why is shame something that's close to your heart? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, honestly, it, it presented itself to me. I didn't really set out to write a book about this. Mm. Um, I've known that I wanted to be a writer uh, since I was in high school and I just had a hard time figuring out what the book would be, I guess. And um, so originally, I, it, it actually was going to be a bit more of almost like a writing exercise where I was just like, okay, I will learn how to write a book by writing a book about myself. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like maybe writing a book is maybe never easy, but it seemed like this might make it a little more manageable. Mm. And then as I, I was sitting down and writing it, I see I saw this theme kind of come up where I was like, man, some of these things that I'm telling, I'm, I'm telling from a, a humorous perspective, like you said, but some of it actually realizing it kind of cuts deep to, to focus on it within myself. Mm. And the more I'm thinking about this, I'm realizing that a lot of these topics also probably have a similar impact on other people who have lived through them. Mm. Uh, so it just became apparent that, um, like I said, let's, let's not shy away from these things. Let's go ahead and look right at them. And uh, it's been very freeing for me as the, you know, the person who dug into my own story to produce this and hopefully it creates a good model where people can see ways that they can dig into their own shit that mm. you know, maybe they would otherwise uh, try to brush off or, or not look at. So is your target audience like people who maybe live their life feeling some kind of dark cloud of shame hovering over them? Or do you have, did you have like a specific target you were going after? Yeah, I mean... I wasn't necessarily super uh, intentional from like a marketing perspective mm. or anything, yeah. but I, I would say that I think it'll really, you know, um, I think it'll really be effective with anybody who's experienced any shame, probably especially re religious shame, although not exclusively. Shame um, doesn't happen in the church, does it, Josh? No. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no doubt, uh, you know, especially within the church and the, and the right. conservative upbringing I had. And um, yeah, so, so really anybody that has felt any sense of shame, embarrassment or guilt about, you know, who they are or, or the things that have been done to them. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the book is uh, kind of the difference between shame and guilt. And I know that's something that I've always confused in my mind uh, growing up. And I imagine some of our listeners as well. And you have this quote, I want to read it real quick. Uh, you say guilt is typically associated with feeling as if one has done something bad rather than feeling as if they can be defined as bad. And so I'm wondering, uh, maybe talk to us a little bit about uh, the difference between guilt and shame. And if you could, maybe give us some like examples from your story of what shame has looked like in your life as opposed to, to guilt to maybe help give people uh, a better vocabulary of what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as I said there, you know, to me, guilt is more of almost kind of like a fleeting feeling mm. where uh, you may recognize something that you did wrong or something that you regret and you may feel guilty about that. Whereas shame is more of a um, redefining of yourself in, in a negative way. 
so I, I start out the book with kind of a, a simple starting point where I talk about um, swearing, you know, and, and using curse words or whatever. Uh, that was a big deal with how I was raised. And I have a story where, you know, I was uh, very young and I was on the bus and I come home and I, I'm the oldest child in my family. And I ask my mom, what does this word mean that I heard on the bus? I ask her, what does fuck mean? Mm. And um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a humorous moment. I find it right. funny. She, uh, so she responds by doing what parents did in the 90s. I don't know if they still do it, but, but she fed me some soap yeah. and washed my mouth out and told me I'm never to use that word again. Uh, side note, that's not effective because I obviously still occasionally partake. Um, but uh, <laughs> I would have never guessed by reading your book. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but um, getting at like kind of that definition that you brought up there is, is she probably was intending to make me feel guilty so that I would ideally not do this again. Whereas mm -hmm. that can create this shame cycle where, you know, years later, I, I'm, you know, I have another example where I'm talking to a friend and I said the word ass. I said I was going to get my ass kicked if I signed up for football because I was a small kid. Um, I immediately felt extremely embarrassed and felt uh, as if I had done something terribly wrong. And not only that, I, I felt as if, um, you know, if those types of words are going to come out of my mouth, maybe I just am the problem. Mm. And uh, like I said, I feel as if maybe like our culture going through this whole reconstruction, deconstruction thing, um, probably for many people, swearing is not maybe a huge point at this, at this time in their life. It certainly isn't to me, but it's, it's this framework that uh, can make larger issues even bigger yet. Uh, later on, I, I talk about, um, you know, when I'm in my early twenties and I, you know, lose my virginity to this woman who uh, I thought like, Hey, we're going to get married. Right. We weren't mm. engaged or anything, but that's this, the level of uh, seriousness I brought to the relationship. And it became apparent, especially once we had slept together, that uh, that just wasn't how she was viewing it. That wasn't in the cards. So then I have this huge shameful moment or, or season, I guess, where, well, I was taught that, you know, purity is so important that I can't ever get that back. And mm. she won't be in a relationship with me moving forward. So I'm at an impasse where I no longer fit into my community and I have no way of righting this wrong. I came across this quote the other day as you were talking. I just remembered it. I'm looking it up in my phone. Uh, where is it? Nadia Bulls Weber says, uh, shame doesn't come from God's voice, but shame comes from voices who say they are speaking for God. And mm. that's different. And that really made me think of like of your book and just of what you were saying that like sometimes we we think that like shame is coming from, from God or from some divine place. But in reality, oftentimes it comes from someone who's speaking, they think speaking for God. And sometimes it's our own self, right? That's speaking for God, we think, and casting yeah. that shame on us. No, that's beautifully yeah. said. Nadia is a brilliant writer. So that's excellent. Mm. I love in the book too, you say that um, you have like a lot of childhood memories that are driven uh, by these scars of shame and disappointment. And I would agree with that because when I was reading certain sections of your book, I was thinking back on my own life. And sometimes it feels like the the moments in my childhood when uh, I felt the most ashamed or felt the most like I disappointed my parents or my teachers or some higher authority that I respected. Like those are often like the most vivid 
memories that carry like the strongest emotions. And so I'm wondering, like, why, why do you think, like, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that those events have the, the power to leave like such a huge lasting impact in our lives? Like so much so that we might even be able to remember those feelings more so than like the happiest moments of our lives. And then to follow that up, like what, what, what can parents who are listening maybe take away from that reality? Like if these, these things stick with us, if they're ingrained in us in some way, shape or form, like as parents, like what, what can we do to our kids? Uh, let me start out by saying I'm not an expert or a psychologist or anything. So this is really just me talking from my own personal understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that uh, I imagine that a lot of those moments, they feel as if they're defining moments because like when you're a kid, you're learning where you fit into society, where you fit into the culture and stuff like that. It's almost like uh, you're a blank canvas that, you know, each parenting lesson or, or each cultural lesson that you get adds something to the canvas. And when you go from a blank page to a couple splatters, it really sticks out versus, mm. you know, as you get older and older, there's more paint on the canvas, so to speak. Um, not that, you know, obviously as an adult, you can have scarring and stuff too, but Hmm. I I would, I don't know. I think that metaphor probably holds up that just, uh, when you're a kid, you, you have so much less to process in terms Hmm. of what you already know. And it's, it's all new. Um, so yeah, when, when you're told by a parent that you're a bad child or, or, you know, somebody, a schoolmate or something like that, uh, makes fun of you and, you know, tells you little boys don't cry or not boys don't cry, but men don't cry or whatever when mm. you're a child. Um, I think those moments probably stick with you longer than, than anything else because of that sense of contrast between what you don't know and what you're getting to know. In terms of parenting, um, you know, as I cover in the book, I, I'm not a parent at the moment. Uh, we've, we've had our battles with infertility, but the way I would look at it, I, I've helped with youth groups and stuff like that. I think probably one of the best things parents can do is uh, parent with humility and um, I guess maybe a sense of grace uh, so that when, when a, a child does something wrong or um, especially when they become a teenager and they're a little more rebellious and stuff, uh, to try to find kind of a common ground instead of um, saying something that might potentially be perceived as identity defining. Um, I, I'm fortunate in the sense that uh, despite my parents' mishaps along the way, um, they certainly always um, tried to be very loving. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they made sure that they communicated that they did love me. Um, obviously, we had our, our moments <laughs> where it didn't go that smoothly. <laughs> right. um, but I think that might be another element to this is parents probably should also recognize that um, you're not going to be perfect. No parent ever can be the most perfect parents will still make mistakes. So also have a measure of grace for yourself as well. I think that's a huge thing. You know, just, we have a, we have a three-year-old and uh, Mm. I wanted, I want to be the perfect parent, you know, of course. And I remember like, I don't know, four days after having this child home, I'm like, Oh man, I'm definitely going to make my fair share of mistakes, (laughs) you know? And uh, just, I think it's so important like the daily as a parent have grace on yourself because you're not going to get it right every time. And I think that that will allow, that allows me, I feel when I have grace on myself to have more grace on my daughter as, as well. So that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. And I'm, I'm willing to bet 
all parents feel that way at some point, probably pretty early on. And if you don't feel that way, I, I would worry about how like authoritarian you're being or something like that. Yeah. That's normal to feel that way. Yeah, definitely. And I think you say in the book too, like there's, um, there were moments like in your life where you probably should have felt a great amount of shame, but it was because of the way that people around you responded Mm. that you didn't have to experience it or carry the weight of it. And I thought that was a really powerful point because like I look at my daughter, like I said, she's three and like as a three-year-old, she's, she's learning how to function in the world. She's learning how to, to do things. She's learning how to be like in public places. And sometimes, you know, she makes choices as a three-year-old that maybe aren't, aren't the best choices in the world. And in those moments, like I could respond to her, you know, in a way that would shame her, but mm-hmm. like, why, right? Like why, why do that? Why respond in a way that's going to force her to carry baggage that she could be freed from if I would instead respond with love and, and grace, like we just spoke about like that, that just makes so much more sense to me. Exactly. Well said. So let's talk a little bit about shame that comes from the church. We joked about it a couple minutes ago, but uh, since I started this podcast, like I've come across countless people who are, I don't know, just like walking through their lives, uh, bearing a sense of shame because they've been told that, you know, God is mad at them or uh, they don't believe the right things. They don't go to church enough. They don't pray enough. They don't have enough faith. And if, I, if I'm being really honest, I've always felt that the church. Now I realize for our listeners, there are churches out there that get it, that get it right, that are doing a very good job, but I'm talking about the church like as a whole, as an institution. But like, I've always felt that the church has used shame as a weapon to almost get people to respond in in certain ways. And I was a pastor for a, a bunch of years and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I can remember like the pressure that was on me to get people to come up to the altar, mm. uh, to get people to say the sinner's prayer. Uh, the pressure that elder boards put on me to get more money in the offering plate. And one of the things that worked like time and time again, and I'm sad to say it is creating a sense of or an atmosphere of shame, like mm-hmm. in the room where you're trying to get this reaction from people like, you know, show God how much you trust him and give him your best offering. That seems like a, you know, a, a fairly innocent phrase, but it kind of subtly implies that if you don't give God your best offering, Maybe you don't trust God as much as your neighbor who gave more than, than you did, or like, you know, mm-hmm. come up to the altar and, you know, confess your sin and get right with God. And that kind of implies that if you don't come up to the altar, <laughs> if you haven't confessed your sin fully, like in a public place, and maybe you're not as close to God as people in the front who are on their knees and they're crying, you know? So all that to say, like, I'm wondering how have you experienced shame in the church? Like, what does that look like for you personally? And what would you say to pastors too, like, or, or church leaders who are listening, people who are you're leading other people. They're responsible for people's hearts. Like how can they be on guard to make sure that they don't weaponize this thing and manipulate people to get the results that they want? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, okay. So for starters, when it comes to shame that I've experienced from the church, um, it, it kind of like intertwines with a lot of the, the, the different things I've gone through. So it's not like exclusively church stuff, but it definitely like layers into it. Um, you know, I think of, well, like I said, the, the starting, the foundational example in my book of, um, you know, swearing and stuff like that. And that just being deemed as, as um, like community breaking language, even though it doesn't necessarily have to be. Mm. Um, I, I think probably for me later on, it became more like uh, implicit shame that I experienced, not so much um, like uh, 
things that people were necessarily intentionally doing kind of like what you were describing, you know? Sure. Like I think for example, um, as I touched on earlier, you know, we, we've had quite the struggle with infertility through the, through my marriage with my wife, Danica. And, um, you know, especially early on our, so we were raised, both of us separate, but, uh, raised similarly in the sense that, um, you know, like if you just have faith, whatever you pray for, you're going to have. Right. Mm, mm. And then, uh, when we have had miscarriage after miscarriage and, and have had very difficult challenges in getting pregnant as well, um, it, it became clear that, you know, either we, we have to interpret that one of two ways, either, you know, prayer doesn't work the way we think it does or the way we've been taught, or we don't have the faith that we thought we did. Mm. And, um, for a while it was, it was more the second one. It was more questioning like, well, what's wrong with us? Like, what are we doing wrong? What did we do to, to make God angry? Uh, I don't have that theology anymore, but that's kind of what was expressed through sermons we heard, or even people who intended well, but, um, would <laughs> try to give us advice or things like this. Uh, I, I think probably that leads to the answer to the second question of what pastors and and uh leaders within churches can do is i I think we need more people saying i don't know or i don't understand either yeah yeah. or you know just being comfortable within that space of doubts and and humility and just being like hey um i don't have good answers for why this is happening to you but we can we can get through this together you know instead of because any any time that you teach like a black and white type thing which i don't think at this stage is very reasonable for the Bible in general to be interpreted that way. Mm. But anytime that you approach it that way, you're creating problems that you don't know you're creating. That's true. Once once we set ourselves up as like the answer people Mm. and we have all these black and white answers to all these questions, I think we set ourselves up for major failure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times, uh, at least for me, it, it kind of, it came from different angles. It was, you know, um, I, I said this on a different podcast. I wish I would have had this metaphor earlier so I could have included it in the book. Uh, but my deconstruction, I didn't realize it was kind of like a game of Jenga, but I was teasing out, you know, multiple blocks at the same time and didn't realize it. Mm. And um, I have a feeling that's probably what pushes people from being the um, so-called like sold out, you know, church every week Christians to um, questioning all these different things that make their leadership uncomfortable. Mm. What you said too about like the miscarriages and stuff that, that resonates with me. I've mentioned this on the, on the podcast before, but my wife and I, we we had a miscarriage before our daughter was born. And uh, I remember I was still like, I was, I was kind of in the, my deconstruction was still very quiet. Like I was keeping it to myself. I wasn't really sharing it with people. And so I was internally wrestling with a lot. And I remember like being in the hospital and, you know, the doctor came over and he told us, you know, what had happened and he was very cold about it. Like it wasn't a very emotional conversation. Like it was emotional on our end, but not really on his end. And right. I remember it being there, standing there with my wife, like, like everything, something just unraveled in me. And I was like, there's just no way that like, that this is okay. And I, I just had all these questions that flooded my mind about God. Like, why would God allow something like this to happen? And like, what's going on? I remember like all of our, a lot of our church friends were like, you know, it's got to believe that God is, God is sovereign and, you know, God has his purposes. And, you know, one day when you get into heaven, you're going to understand like all of those, 
all the all those words came from very good places in people's hearts like those people love us we love them but i remember feeling in my heart like i don't believe that mm. but then there was this sense of shame that like well mm. if they can believe that and they can be someone have so much faith about it like why can't i and right. i think for a while i really wrestled with that sense of shame that came from those people from a very good heart but it just felt like like crap when it hit me <laughs> yeah i have a feeling that like those people many of them probably um, they're not consciously thinking this, but they're probably saying that for themselves too. Cause they don't, mm. they don't have a good answer for why it happens. They, they see somebody they care about going through these, um, you know, these terrible tragedies that they can't stop from happening. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it's kind of, I don't know. I think it's almost like a, a selfish way to respond, but it's not intended to be, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think too, I think, I think in church, like, we're groomed to have the answers, you know, mm-hmm. and especially, oh, yeah. especially pastors. Like I always felt like when I was a pastor, like I'm the answer guy, you know, like mm-hmm. people come to me with a question, I better figure it out. <laughs> I better figure right. out like what the answer is. And if I, if I say, I don't know, and it's like, well, don't you have a degree hanging on your wall? Like, aren't you supposed <laughs> right. to know the answers yeah. to these questions? Like, and if he doesn't know, did we pick the right person to be the pastor? You know, like, so it's like all of that kind of stuff creates shame, I think in the pastor, you know, as well. So it's almost like this never ending circle of, of shame on all ends. But I think, like you said, if we would just be able to be okay with, I don't know, I'm not really sure of the answer, you know, maybe we just need to sit on it. You know, maybe we just need to, you know, kind of meditate on it or dwell on it or whatever. I think that that would go so much further um, in, in the church. I think that's a huge question mark, at least for me with how I feel about the church right now is, is it seems like the structure is kind of designed in a way to make pastors feel the way you felt and to make the congregation feel the way you described as well, where they feel lesser, where they don't feel as if they can find these answers on their own. Um, I uh, Full disclosure, I've, I left our church about a year ago. And at the moment, we're not sure we're going to go back or we don't know what the mm-hmm. future holds for us in that sense. I, I'm still a Christian, but um, just trying to figure out how community and church and all that should play out. Um, but I, I think that an answer for me at least, is probably going to be something where um, it's more egalitarian. I don't mean that in the gender sense, but I mean across mm. the board where, you know, everybody has equal say, I guess. And it's more of a dialogue is, is really what I'm yeah. saying. It's good to ask people who know more than you do about things. Uh, but once you create this hierarchical structure, it, I don't know, it gets pretty messy fast. Yeah, it really does. And I think we're in the same boat. Like we haven't been to church. I don't know. It's been over like a year and a half, I think, since we've been to church. We moved from New Jersey to North Carolina. We went to a few different churches and we just, we just felt we just needed a break. I think, you know, we just have been either in ministry, like up front for all of our lives, or we've been involved in like, you know, Bible studies and some form of volunteer stuff. And we're just like, we just need a to take a step away. And I think we just both, my wife and I just have, you know, various different kinds of baggage and, and wounds and stuff like that. But, um, you know, having the time away you know, we started this podcast and we have this closed Facebook group and we have about 160 people. And I say probably like 40 to 50 are active on a fairly regular basis. And the conversation mm-hmm. that happens in there is like so good. And I think like, in the beginning, I made it known like, Hey, I'm not the pastor of the group. <laughs> you know, I just, I just hit the, yeah. I just hit the link to, to create it. And uh, you guys are in here. So let's just have some, some good dialogue. And it's just a, 
place where a lot of people say they ask questions. There's a lot of people, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's a really good question. And then it just goes quiet for a while, you know, and then somebody chimes in with some thoughts and it's just, I think it's just such a beautiful way. And I said to my wife, like, if this could be what church was like, I feel mm. like it would just be so magical. That is beautiful. I, I do wonder if that's the future of what Christ-like community should be, um, especially because you also remove what, what you're describing. I imagine you, you remove a lot of like the uh, financial issues that I feel like is pretty yeah. broken with the church structure as well, you know? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a huge thing. And I think it's funny, like a lot of people are you know, talk about like a lot of podcasters, like how do, how do you make money with your podcast? And one of the things that like I wrestle with that is like, I don't necessarily want it to make a lot of money in order to like be the job that I do. Because like just in my experience in the church, like when, when people give to something, then all of a sudden there's like power in the people, mm. you know, and that's, I mean, it's not that that's a bad thing, but at the same time it can be abused in the sense of, you know, remember like being in the church, like, well, if you talk about that in your sermons, I'm going to take my $500 a week that I give and I'm going to take it somewhere mm. else, you know? And it's like, uh, it just doesn't feel very good. So I think that having a community, uh, like you said, that we know those, like those financial things aren't necessarily an issue. Those things don't become central. Those things yeah, are yeah. kind of on the outskirts and the central stuff is the question. The central stuff is doing life together, figuring stuff out. And I think that in some kind of cool way, you know, that's able to happen with technology these days, even when people aren't in the same location. Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. So last thing I want to kind of explore is uh, kind of the idea of finding God maybe outside of your tradition. Uh, you have a part in your book where you talk about the uh, the Council of Jerusalem. I think it's in the book of Acts where Paul and Peter and James, they want to let as many people into the family of God as possible. And uh, they're arguing that circumcision isn't needed to be, to be a Christian. Then you have this quote, you say, this is what my life was missing. Um, I wasn't taught that God could reveal himself to me in ways out of the tradition, out of the tradition. I didn't know that I could explore things outside of what was written in stone to learn the truth of Jesus. So maybe talk to me more um, about this. Like a lot of our listeners, like myself, like you, you know, brought up in this tradition where God is found either in the church, in the Bible, or is in this very small group of church friends that you might have. He's not in other religions. He's certainly not in relationships you might have with non-Christians certainly not outside of your theology that, you know, is right and above everybody else's. So maybe talk to me about what it's looked like for you to find God outside of your, uh, you know, Christian upbringing. Um, I think that's honestly partly what triggered my deconstruction. I, I didn't really anticipate it was to, when I started realizing that I felt, um, I felt closer to God. I, I live in Colorado. So I felt closer to God out here hiking in the mountains and talking with a couple of my friends more so than I ever felt in the church. Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't even necessarily, we would talk about meaningful things some of the time. It might be politics or religion or whatever, but it wasn't really designed around that. It would just be whatever organically came up. So sometimes we'd be talking about um, less meaningful things like entertainment, movie and video games and stuff like that. Mm. And, and it just, it, it was, I don't know, it was that like soul feeling you get where, you just uh, you sense that you're you're present and you're where you're supposed to be, mm. and then uh, I started getting that feeling more often in other places. I I happen to really love uh, rock music and heavy music and all of that, and I would be going to these concerts where um, it wouldn't even necessarily be a Christian band or anything, but I I'd be uh, at a band 
or a show from a band called Beartooth, for example, which I mentioned in there. And they have this song where um, it's specifically about, uh, you know, uh, kids who have been abused by their parents. Mm. And I've never had that specific experience, but I just got this uh, kind of worshipful sense as I was like screaming these lyrics (laughs) along with the people around me. And you could get the sense that some of these people had lived through that. And I, I just felt closer to God knowing that even though I didn't know these people by name, uh, we were kind of for at least a moment carrying each, each other's burdens together. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, so just the, like that, that's kind of what triggered that idea initially. And then as I've gotten further and further through this process and, and was able to release any uh, shame or feeling like I, I had to, you know, exclusively look at Christianity. I, I'm not an expert in other religions, but I found things that I've loved in Buddhism. I found things that I've loved in other cultures, even it sounds silly, but maybe you can relate Glenn, but uh, <laughs> you know, I was told uh, or, or implicitly taught that things like yoga and meditation are, are Eastern the devil. Things. Yeah. The devil. <laughs> yeah. They don't, yeah, they don't work with Christianity and right. Um, I mean, I don't practice those things a lot. I would like to get better at it, but I, I definitely see the value in them and I've started to explore those things. And, and it's interesting how these things that I I was told were evil or wrong (laughs) has the exact opposite result for me. For sure. I, uh, I was at the wild goose festival this past summer. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I have. uh, Yeah, it's awesome, but they have all bunch of different types of people. I mean, it's, it's kind of Christian oriented, like at the, at the very center of it, but, and they have people that come there who are atheists. There's people who are Buddhists, like all different sorts of people. And they had a, somebody was selling a Buddhist prayer beads. Mm. And so I picked up these prayer beads and I, I wear them every day now. And in the morning, I don't do it every morning, but I try to do it a few times a week. Like I just sit quietly and I don't even know if I'm doing it right, but I just, I just love the, the idea of, of Buddhism and just the the meditation piece and just the um the piece of trying to center yourself and trying to um imagine you know breathing breathing in breathing out breathing you know i, I just there's something about it that i just love and i th- i feel like it makes me almost like a better a better christian you know i don't for lack of a better word uh, i was yeah. reading barbara brown taylor's book holy envy and she talks about how when you see something in another religion even if you don't understand it uh if it attracts you there's nothing wrong with almost like adopting that piece, not because you're trying to convert to that religion, but because it can make you a better follower of your own religion. And I feel like there's just so many things that I find that are unique in what other people do. And I'm like, that's beautiful. I feel like that could help me be a better follower of Christ myself. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the same perspective I have at this point. I, um, I remember reading, I, I want to say it was in Velvet Elvis. It was a book by Rob Bell where I, I took away this concept where it was like anything that you come across that is truth belongs to God. It doesn't matter who yeah. tries to claim that truth. It belongs to God. Uh, right. So you don't have to be at, at that time. I was struggling with things like evolution versus creationism right. and things like that. <laughs> and it just opened my mind to, to not be afraid of, of learning new things. Yeah. That book, by the way, Velvet Elvis, I think that was like one of his most radical books, but like nobody felt it was radical. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's so funny how he like kind of got a free pass for a couple books and then Love Wins comes out and 
everybody lost their shit. <laughs> yeah, he has that one, like, Jesus came to save the Christians. Everybody loved that book. Then he talks yeah. about love, and it's like, let's crucify Rob Bell. <laughs> right, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> it's so, so interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, he's, I, I love him, though. I, I've had a chance to see him speak, and it was, uh, I, he's definitely somebody I look up to, for sure. Yeah, he came to Charlotte uh, in the, I think it was last, maybe in the fall or late, late summer, and we went to see him, and it was, it was pretty wild. So uh, before we go, uh, people who are listening who maybe, maybe they're carrying that burden of shame today, maybe they're maybe ashamed from their childhood, maybe it's something from their family, maybe it's related to spiritual stuff from their church, uh, what words would you have for them? Like what words of encouragement would you have for them to kind of press on? What advice would you give them if they're feeling like they're covered in shame? Like maybe to the point where I know I don't even want to get out of bed in the morning to do this day all over again. Like what would you say to that person uh, today? Yeah, um, honestly, this is part of what led me to releasing this book, to piecing it together, is um, I realized that a lot of the things that I experienced made me feel isolated and alone. And mm-hmm. I have a feeling that the person you're describing probably feels the same way. Yeah. Uh, so the first thing I would say is, is that you're not alone. Uh, no matter how much you feel like that, you're not. Uh, whatever types of feelings you've had with shame and guilt and embarrassment and the like, um, I can say me too. I've, I've been there as well. And um, I hope that you're able to find community and people that uh, you can trust with these things. Hmm. Uh, but, but I would really strongly encourage you to find an outlet because the longer you keep it to yourself, the more, um, the more isolating and, and the, the harsher it feels. Hmm. Um, I, I'll also add that uh, maybe I should have covered this earlier, but like I said, I've gotten nothing but positive feedback for this. And I'm thankful for having a community around me who responds that way. But if you are listening to this, that means you are already familiar with Glenn and his community and uh, hopefully a part of that already. And, mm-hmm. and I'm willing to bet there are people there who uh, would love to uh, engage on these topics. And, and they would also tell you that they've experienced similar things as well. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I'll add on top of that is I, you can always message me as well. I'm on Facebook and uh, I'd be more than happy to hear anybody's story. If you feel like you have nobody else that you can share it with, you can certainly share those things with me. That's really good. Maybe I'll invite you into the group if you're open to it. Yeah, feel free. Yeah, that would be awesome. I think, I think too, like, I think just kind of like you said that when you feel alone, I feel like the shame feels heavier. Mm-hmm. I feel like the, all the negative feelings that we have, I think gain weight when we're alone. But I think that when we realize that there's other people who are around us who maybe are going through the same things, but maybe entirely different things, but they're going through their own crap and they're going through their own stuff. I think that that all of a sudden kind of loosens the grip that those dark feelings have inside. And I think makes it easier for us to bear them together. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of these things, even if they're not the exact same circumstances, they have similar roots Mm -hmm. and, and we can all find those roots within ourselves to share with each other. Absolutely. And where's the best place for people to buy your book? I know authors sometimes have a preference. They want you to buy it here, want you to buy it there. Do you have any preference or just go out and buy it? I No, I have no real preference here. Probably the easiest way is Amazon. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you can also order it through Barnes and Noble and, and a couple outlets like that. But feel free to do Amazon if that works best for you. I appreciate any support. And uh, Again, it's called Shame and Unconventional Memoir. Awesome. Well, I'll put the link in the show notes. And uh, Josh, let's do this again sometime. 
Hey, I would love to. Thank you again for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to future interactions together. Uh, Thank you so much, man. Have a good night. You too.